0: So what we're going to do in the weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to look at the procession of the king, and this is the journey that Jesus is making to Jerusalem, and we're going to really just start um, today, we're going to start a day before he enters Jerusalem, so Jesus and his procession. Now, remember, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and the feast that will be celebrated there at Jerusalem is, is, there's actually three of them. The Jews called it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It lasted seven days, but in what they called the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the Feast of, Peno- of, of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. So in those 7 days of feasting that was called the feast of unleavened bread there were actually three feasts. Jesus was crucified as our Passover lamb. He was put away, buried on unleavened bread and he was resurrected on first fruits. He was the first fruits of resurrection. So In that week, Jesus fulfilled those three feasts. So, Passover, unleavened bread, was one of those feasts in which every male was commanded by God to appear before him in Jerusalem. And so, Jesus was not going to Jerusalem by himself. There were literally thousands, tens of thousands of Jews making their way to Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus, as a good Jew, as an obedient son of his father, kept the feast. And as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, there is a procession of people that are joining him. Because by this time, People, Many people have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king and that he is going to bring about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And so the people were excited, they had seen the miracles, they had experienced uh, the wonder and the majesty and the glory of all that Jesus had done from feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 to even the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, of raising up Lazarus from the dead. So this procession is making their way to Jerusalem, and preceding that triumphal, what we call the triumphal entry, and we're going to talk about the triumphal entry in in, uh, coming Sundays. But in that time preceding the triumphal entry, each of the Gospels record those things that Jesus did immediately before he actually went into Jerusalem. And in those gospel accounts, we see Jesus teaching by word and also by deed what the king and what the kingdom is like. For instance, in Mark's gospel, we have the account of Jesus healing Blind Bartimaeus. Just before it records that he enters Jerusalem. Who is blind Bartimaeus? He was the lowest of the low. He was a blind beggar. Who literally sat by the road every day. That's how he was able to sustain himself and make a living. In Matthew... Matthew actually, just before the record of the triumphal entry, Matthew records Jesus healing two blind individuals. They are not named in Matthew's gospel, but Mark and Luke name one of them. In Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, they both mention by name Blind Bartimaeus. And so these two blind men that were healed in in the record of Matthew's gospel... Both of those men were physically blind. Both of those men cried out to Jesus and both were given eyes to see physically, but not just physically, they were given eyes of faith to see their Savior and their Messiah because the scripture says that they both followed Jesus as a result of that gift of sight. And we see this when Jesus is dealing with blind people, this was even brought up by the Pharisees, that just because someone didn't have physical sight didn't mean that they were not able to see Jesus. And yet there were those who had physical sight who could not see Jesus standing right before them. Just as today there are those who have physical sight who read the scripture or don't read the scripture and they cannot see Jesus. So it is our ability to see Christ by faith that is most important. And like a physically blind person, only God can heal the blind. The physically blind, only God can heal the blindness of our hearts and our minds who cannot see Him and know Him. In Luke, we're going to look today at the parable of the ten minus. In John's gospel, Prior to the triumphal entry, we see two significant events. We see one, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And we also see the anointing of Jesus when the costly oil was poured upon, in John's gospel, upon his feet. And Mary, with her hair and with her tears, washes the feet of Jesus as she has anointed them with oil. Jesus, in all of these instances, we see that Jesus has authority to open blind eyes, to judge men and to hold their lives in the balance. He has the authority to raise them from the dead and to give them life, physically and spiritually. He is infinitely worthy of our worship and our devotion as Mary poured the oil over Jesus that would have been equivalent to a year's wages just to purchase that oil. There was no sacrifice too costly because Jesus is that worthy. Jesus demonstrates that He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of all. And His worth demands our worship, but even more, He demands our very life. So leading up to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus traveled through Jericho. Luke, they all record this. Jericho was by foot, because they didn't have Ubers and they didn't have cars. Jesus wasn't riding a horse. He was on foot. It would have been a good day's journey from Jericho to Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives and then entrance into the city. And we'll look at the encounter with blind Bartimaeus, but also with Zacchaeus. Both men lived in Jericho, but they were two very different men. One was a poor blind beggar, one was a very rich tax collector. But in in some ways they were very similar too. They were both blind, one physically blind, one spiritually blind. And Jesus healed both of them and gave both of them eyes to see their need for the Savior And they both followed Jesus. And after the encounter with Zacchaeus, when Jesus says, come down from that tree, Zacchaeus, for I'm going to your house today. We would sing the song, but we won't. (laughs) But you all know it. Jesus goes to the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and Zacchaeus, in repentance, comes to Jesus and says, I have given... Back the money I stole, I have repaid, I have changed my ways. And the difference in the life of Zacchaeus was Jesus. Just as the difference in the life of blind Bartimaeus is Jesus. And so the difference in our life is Jesus. It's Jesus. And it was in that encounter with Zacchaeus, and we're going to actually read this, beginning in Luke chapter 19, verses 8. And this goes through verse 27. Follow along as I read this portion of Scripture, which will be our text today. In this parable, that Jesus will launch into after his encounter with Zacchaeus. This parable of the ten minus is a parable in which Jesus reminds people of the kingdoms of men while revealing to them the kingdom of God. And they were to see the difference. And we are today to know the difference between the kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. Because there is very stark difference. Luke 19, verse 8, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. <clears throat> and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minus, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have put. which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did, not wait, who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Let me read one more verse. Verse 28. And when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Father in heaven, we ask that you would by your Holy Spirit, that dwells in us, by your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, that you would open our hearts and our minds. Father, each week we break open your word, each week we read it, we hear it, we see it with our eyes. Lord, let your word have entrance, not just in a physical way, not just in a Intellectual way, but Father, open our hearts that your word would have entrance into our hearts. That the word hid in our hearts would change us and would transform us. That we would be a people conformed to the image of Jesus. That we would be a people that would show forth the light and the glory of God in this earth. The light and the glory of the Savior, the Lord, the King. The Lord Jesus Christ, Father, we were all like Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, blind and unable to see our need for a Savior, but in your grace, Lord, you give us eyes to see, Lord, give us hearts, hungry hearts, give us minds that can grasp the revelation of your truth and let those minds be renewed be conformed to the very mind of Christ, that we would walk in the light as you are in the light, to be your witnesses in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The kingdom of God is not the kingdom of men. We all know this on an intellectual level, but I think if we look around the world, That we live in. We look around our nation in particular. This is the nation we live in. We don't live here by accident. You live in this nation because God, in His grace, caused you to be birthed here. Caused you to live here. And His common grace is enjoyed by everyone here. Whether they believe in Him, trust in Him, look to Him or not. From the, hard, the hardest-hearted atheist to the most devoted follower of Christ, we all are blessed by His common grace. Amen. Or the, the Bible says it this way, it rains on the just and the unjust. You notice it doesn't just rain on the, the house and the crops and the gardens of the righteous and the unrighteous and the, the haters and the rejecters of God have no... Water, no rain. No, it rains on the just and the unjust. The sun shines and it warms the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls and waters the earth and goes into the earth and provides water for us so that those thirsty who are righteous or unrighteous can quench their thirst. But as we know from the words of Jesus, there is a Water, called living water, that only Jesus can provide us, that's not common grace. The living water that Jesus provides to us is not a common grace given to everyone. The rain is given to everyone, but the living water is only given to those whom the Father has given to the Son. And the Son gives living water. That is... Special grace. It's not grace. You, you do understand that grace is something we do not deserve. That's why it's called grace. But God gives it freely to those whom He chose, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 4, the ones that were chosen before the foundation of the world. We live in a nation... A kingdom, if you will. Though we call it a a republic. They're all kingdoms. It doesn't matter what form of government they have. Our president is like a king. Maybe not like the kings of old, but he is the one that is in authority in our nation. The kingdom of God is not the kingdom of men. In fact, the kingdom of God is completely other than man's kingdom and the concept of kingdom rule and kingdom power. And because we have lived in the kingdom of men for so long and we have not been as conscious of or as attentive to the kingdom of God as we should be, we begin to think of God's kingdom the same way we think of men's kingdom. And we think of God the same way we think of men who rule us. And there could be nothing farther from the truth that God is like any man that rules us or His kingdom is like any kingdom of men. And this was made clear by Jesus when He was approached by the mother of James and John and asked if her sons could have a special place by His side when He came into His kingdom. Now because of the prophet Daniel and the timetable Daniel laid out, by the time Jesus is making his procession to Jerusalem, there is a reason why so many Jews, why the nation of Israel believed that the kingdom was at hand. They could do the math given by the prophet Daniel, and they knew that it was time for the Messiah. And they were all looking for their Messiah. And here is Jesus, the True Messiah, the Christ, making his way to Jerusalem. That procession going with Jesus thought he was going to march in there and overthrow the Romans and set up the kingdom. Well, he did do that. Absolutely he did that. He didn't just overthrow the Romans. He overthrew every other kingdom that, that was and is and ever will be. Amen. He did. He just didn't do it in the way that the people thought he was supposed to. And do you know why they could not wrap their minds around the way Jesus brought the kingdom and conquered the kingdoms of men? It was because they lived under the kingdom of men and the rule of men for so long that they just began to think that that's how God was going to do things. God was going to be just like the Romans and march in and overthrow everybody except God was going to be God and he was going to do it in a, in a... I don't know if they necessarily even believed he'd do it in a nicer way. It's just that when he got through conquering everybody, they weren't going to be under the thumb of a dictator anymore. They were going to be the ones ruling the kingdom. Because by the time Jesus in his procession is marching to Jerusalem... The people of God, the people of of Israel, if we could say that, the people of Judah, because they're the ones that came back from captivity, those two southern tribes, those people have been living under, they've been living under the thumb of Gentile dictators for over 600 years now. If you count the first Babylonian... And if you count the northern kingdoms of Israel, the ten tribes up north, they were carried away captive by the Assyrians 750 years prior. So in a sense, from 750 to 600 years, God's people have been living under the rule of the kingdoms of men. And by this time, they are very tired of it. And here comes Jesus. At the appointed time, it was all lining up. It's time for the Messiah. And they were right. It was time for the Messiah. And he marched into Jerusalem and did exactly what they did not expect him to do. And that was die. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're not there yet. So while all this excitement about the kingdom is going on and the mother of James and John, they know Jesus is the Messiah. They're, they're thinking he's going to march in and set up the kingdom. And she says, Jesus, will you, will you, will you say yes to whatever I ask you? Literally what, what she said. Have your parents, have your kids ever done that? Mommy, Daddy, promise me you'll say yes. I'm going to ask you a question, but you have to promise to say yes. <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> If you're a good parent, you'll say, no, I won't promise that. Mark chapter 10, verse 41 through 45 records this event for us. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but she says, can my sons have the, the appointed seat by at your side? And he says, I uh, can't, can't do that. And Jesus then asked them, can you, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to get baptized with? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they said, oh, yeah, Jesus, we can do it. He said, well, you're going you're to get baptized, you're going to drink the cup all right. He said, but it's not my place to give you that place you seek. And then Jesus says this. Then the 10, the rest of the disciples, the rest of the, uh, of, of the 12, heard what was being asked and they became very upset. Verse 41, and when, they, when the 10 heard it, they began to be greatly displeased With James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, that word Gentiles, nations. So just think this, nations. You know that those who are considered rulers over the nations lord it over them. And their great ones, their kings and their presidents and their congresses, their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Oh, wait a minute. Let me read that again. Yet it shall not be so among you. You're not to be like the nations. You're not to be like the kings and the kingdoms of men. It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Yes, Jesus advocated slavery, and he's not ashamed to record it right here in his word. In fact, he says to us, you want to be great, you want to be first, embrace the life of a slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Do you see how other than God's kingdom is than the kingdom of men? When you begin to understand this, you begin to understand why so many became disillusioned with Jesus as He was beat and ultimately crucified and died. All Israel knew the time of Messiah was near. This great anticipation about the restoration of the kingdom was was in the air. Jesus was indeed the king, but the nature of his kingdom was far different from the kingdoms of men. In God's kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. To be great, you've got to become a servant. To be first, you've got to become a slave of all. And Jesus not only spoke these words, but he demonstrated throughout his earthly life and ministry. This is what we see in these events, just preceding the triumphal entry, where Jesus is healing poor blind lepers and he's rest- or blind uh, beggars, and he-, and he healed lepers too. He's restoring tax collectors who are despised and hated, and he says, "Salvation has come to your house today." to the tax collector that everyone hated and wanted to kill. But they just couldn't because Rome was in power. So God's kingdom is different in every way than the kingdom of men. And Jesus said of himself, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so we are required to be no less than our Master. We are required to be no less than Jesus in terms of greatness, or we could say it like this being a slave. We're to be no different than our master Jesus in terms of being first, preeminent, or being a slave, because that's what God equates preeminence with slavery and service. That's what He creates equates greatness with. We are to be living sacrifices offered up to the Lord and in doing so we become like Jesus laying down our life in service to Him and to one another. That was part of my point when I talked about praying coming forward for prayer so that The body, because we're a body, so that the body can see and discern the needs that exist in it. So that we can do what Jesus has commanded us to do, to to serve one another. And serving one another may be faithfully praying for one another. You don't have to make a big deal out of it. Just go in your prayer closet and faithfully pray for those who you see are in need. That's why we're not to keep our needs hidden always. We're to come together as one body. In the procession Jesus is leading to Jerusalem, we see the king minister to the poor and to the rich. He serves both because he is the Lord and the king of both. Men today think, because of their wealth, and because of their power, and because of their influence. They rule. Their king, their lord. I promise you Vladimir Putin may think that he is king and lord and powerful, but there is a king and a lord and a power above him and above every other earthly power. And this is why when we see the things happening in the world around us that are happening... We are to not lose hope. We are to be hopeful because God will repay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And God is using every situation, even the most tragic situations, even the most out-of-control-looking situations. God is absolutely in control, and there is no reason for us to think otherwise at all. We come to this parable of the ten minas, and in this parable, Jesus alludes to an actual historic event. So remember, when Jesus was born, Herod was the king. Herod I was the king. And Herod I was the guy who sent the soldiers to kill all the babies two years and younger, thinking he was going to get rid of this king. Remember, the, the magi, the wise men came from the east and said, oh, we've seen his star... Well, this is all prophecy from the Old Testament. So they saw the star that God caused to rise up, this light, and these astronomers, um, astrologers, astronomers, they were both. These wise men from the east, from Babylon, because there were still Jews, many Jews living in Babylon, living in that region of the Middle East, present-day Iraq, present-day Iran, And when they saw that star rise, they knew that the prophecy had been fulfilled and that that scepter was going to rise up out uh, and the king would be born. And so they come to Herod, and Herod says, Oh, when you find him, let me know so I can come worship him. Well, Herod didn't want to worship him. Herod wanted to murder him. Because Herod recognized that this king, this baby, would be a threat to his rule. And so Herod had a son. His son's name was Archelaus. Now remember, Mary and Joseph both had dreams, and in the dream of Joseph, God tells Joseph, go to Egypt and stay there. And when they got word that Herod had died, they came back, but then they realized Archelaus was on the throne. You ever wonder about that? Why why they diverted? Well, it's it's an interesting bit of history about the Herods. Archelaus was the son of Herod I, but he wasn't the only son. There was another guy named Antipas. You find him later in the book of Acts. He was tetriarch. Antipas was really the guy that was supposed to become king after Herod, but something happened. We don't know what. As you can imagine, there could be some intrigue there, but Archelaus was on, on Herod's deathbed. He said, not Antipas, but Archelaus will be the king. So Archelaus became the king. Now what's interesting, Herod and Archelaus both did this. Guess where they had to go to get their kingly power? They had to go away to a far country called Rome. And they had to go to Rome, they had to go to the city of Rome, they had to get the blessing of Caesar, and they had to be named king by Caesar because they were just kings under another king. Caesar was king. In fact, Caesar is lord. And it was demanded that you confess that Which is why Jesus is Lord is the most political statement you'll ever... You'll never say a statement more political than Jesus is Lord. And in the Roman Empire, Jesus is Lord was a political statement. Because the demand from Caesar, the Lord, was Caesar is Lord. Say it and everything will be okay. Guess what the Christians wouldn't do? They wouldn't say it. Why? Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And so, Archelaus, when he becomes king, after his father's died, he's got to go away to a far country, and that city is Rome, to get his blessing from the king of kings, who is Caesar. And In this parable here, Jesus is alluding to something these Jews would have known very well. So let's look at this. So, verse 11, now as, he heard, as they heard these things, heard what things? The things that were spoken to Zacchaeus. Remember, what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus said that to everyone listening. And then Luke records this. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Why did he speak another parable? Because he was near Jerusalem. He was a day's journey away. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So they literally thought Jesus would march into Jerusalem and immediately overthrow the Romans and set up the kingdom. We're not talking weeks, months, years. We're talking immediately, and that's what this word means. Jesus knew this, and he knew that their hopes were misplaced because they didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. So he gives them this parable in a way that they would understand it in two different ways. They would understand the histories being alluded to here of Herod and Archelaus, but they would also understand that Jesus is revealing to them truths about the kingdom. Now, they didn't understand this right then, and we see later on in Scripture where it says they did not understand these things until after Jesus is already resurrected. So a lot of what Jesus told them, it just went... But really and truly, it went in here. Because after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit then took that word that was in their heart that they did not understand, and He began to reveal truth to them. And this parable is one of those truths that they came to realize later on. So therefore, He says, verse 12, "...a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return." So he called ten of his servants, delivered ten miners, and said to them, Do business until I come. Occupy until I come. Literally means do business. Be busy about the business of the kingdom until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. The Jews actually did that. When Archelaus went to Rome, they sent a delegation to Caesar and said, Do not let this man rule over us. But Caesar didn't really care what the Jews thought. And he gave the kingdom, he gave Palestine to Archelaus. Jesus is telling this parable, and these Jews are hearing this in their understanding. They know their history. They hated the Herods. But you know what they did with the Herods? They tolerated the Herods. They used the Herods to their advantage. They embraced the Herods and were in allegiance with the Herods when it served their purpose. And as we go through this in the following Sundays, we're going to see that in their lowest moment of betrayal, Their allegiance to Herod and to Rome was more important than their allegiance to God because they gave up their Christ, their Messiah, to be crucified so that they could preserve their own power structure, their own kingdoms. Jesus, as He's giving the parable of the ten minas, knows exactly what's going to happen. He is... Not just alluding to past history, but he is showing them, and they don't even realize it, who they are and what they're going to do and why they would ultimately be destroyed. So then he goes on and he says, You know, the, the, he has the ten servants, he gives each of them uh, a mina. And we, so we, we get this, right? Or do we get this? Do you know that God has given you gifts? Do you know that God has blessed you? And God didn't give you those gifts so that you could compare them to everyone else? This is what the Corinthian church did. They were were spoiled. They were coveting one another's gifts because they were like little children saying, look, I've got the red ball and you don't. Look, I speak in tongues and you don't. We all have gifts. And the point is not that we compare our gifts to one another. It's that we recognize our gifts come from God. And God gave you the gifts that he's given you because he chose to on purpose. So your gift is not an accident. Your lack of a gift that you wish you had that you don't have is not an accident. It's God's plan and God's purpose. But what? One of the things this parable will teach us is that we can take the smallest of gifts and turn it into something great. Now he gave them minus, which is a, a, a an amount of currency. It's, it's like a coin. Be like saying I gave you a dollar. What did you do with that dollar? I turned it into ten dollars. Well, I'm not going to give you ten dollars. What did the master give them? I'm going to give you ten cities. You couldn't buy ten cities with one mina. But this is how God can multiply our gifts. This is how God can take the value of our gifts and multiply that for his glory, for his kingdom. And that's what we're to do. So instead of despising or wishing we had something else, we need to be thankful for the gifts that God has given to us, we need to, Gideon, what is it we do with those gifts? Why do we use them? What are you going to build with that? And why do we use the gift, what do we use that gift for? To honor God. That's what you told me, and that's right. That's yeah, to honor God. So we take our gifts and we use them to honor God. Don't worry about how big your gift is. Just use the gift you have to honor God. Don't waste time wishing you had someone else's gift. Use the gift you have to honor God. Wishing you had someone else's gift is the sin of coveting. That's a sin. When we sit around wishing we had someone else's gift or wishing we had a different gift, that is sin, and we need to repent of it And we need to become thankful for the gift that God has given us. Whether it's what we consider a very little or very much. It's not about that. It's about what we're going to do with our gift. It's about our faithfulness in our heart. So Jesus then shows this corresponding reward to faithfulness. I want to come down here to verse 24. And it says, And he stood and he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, the guy who just wrapped it up and hid it away and then gave it back to him when he came. The master said, You could have at least put it in the bank to earn interest if you did nothing else. From that guy, he says, to those who stood by, take the minor from him and give it to him who has ten minas. And they said what we would all say, because we're all about fairness today. Right? But, but that guy's already got ten. Why don't you give it to someone who, or why don't you just be nice and let that guy keep it? You know, he thought he was doing the right thing. Life is not about fairness. I'm going to tell you as followers of Jesus, you need to get over this idea of fairness. That is a sinful idea that the world has crammed down our throats to the point that we have diversity and equity and inclusion committees in our cities. Our city has one. Why? Because they're sinful, that's why. Because they're woke, that's why. Because instead of just following the Bible and the gospel, we've got to have man's idea of fairness, which is not fair. See, you know what's fair to man? What's fair to man is the guy who couldn't even place in a swimming race, who placed 400. So he got the bright idea that I'll just become a woman. Because now I can identify, gender doesn't have anything to do with your biology, it's, it's what you identify as. Well, guess what he's done? And I'm not going to say she because it's not a she, it's a he. He has beat all of those women and won the National Collegiate titles that belong to those women. And him as a man swimming in a pool with a bunch of women have beat them all And he's won the titles that he can never win as a man. And the world says that's fair because he's a woman. No. Now, I think it's kind of funny that they're having to suffer from their own fairness, their own ideas of fairness. Or the parable where Jesus hires the guy at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then he hires the guy at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and 5 o'clock quitting time comes, he pays the guy that worked from 8 to 5 the same thing as the guy that worked from 4 to 5. And how many of you would say, wait, that's not fair. Jesus said, was it not my money? Did I not have the right to pay whoever I want, whatever I want, it's my money. I, you, I didn't make you come work for me, you chose to come work for me. We need to get over this idea of fairness. Because it's a sinful, it's sinful, it just is. And so Jesus says, take from him who has and give to the one. take, Take from the one who doesn't have and give to the one who has. To everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now, he's talking about the kingdom here. Because Israel was given great gifts. But she, throughout her history, rejected God. Repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. While looking for the Messiah the whole time. And now here, the Messiah is. But he's also showing them... Their true nature, which is really our true nature until Jesus gives us a new one, until Jesus causes us to be born again. And then in verse 27, he says, bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them. Just like the Jews didn't want Archelaus to reign over them, you're going to see just A few days that these same Jews did not want Jesus to reign over them. To the point that they cried that he be crucified. Bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Jesus is forewarning them. We'll see this as we go through Luke's gospel especially Right after this, Jesus comes upon when he gets to the Mount of Olives and he looks over Jerusalem, he weeps. Because what he just said at the end of this parable is what will happen just in a few decades from his crucifixion and resurrection. And he knew it would happen because it's what is just. They got what was due them. If you want to talk about fairness, it was fair of God to send the Romans to utterly destroy the city and the temple and raise it to the ground and not leave one stone standing upon another. That's what they truly deserved. But instead, God sent them His Son. And even ordained that His Son die on the cross so that their sins could be forgiven. Even the sins of those who crucified Him. There were those who were were responsible for crucifying him who later came to trust in Jesus. And even that sin of crucifying the Savior was forgiven. Because you do realize that it wasn't just their sin that crucified him, but it was our sin as well. My sin crucified the Savior. Your sin crucified the Savior. And what we truly deserve is God's judgment. We... Deserved that he would bring us before him and slay us, but instead he gives to us grace in his mercy and in his love for us. And why does God love us? The scripture in Romans 9 Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. When neither of the two boys did anything before they were ever born, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And automatically, what's our question? Why did God hate Esau? He didn't do anything. Wrong question. The question really should be, why did did God love Jacob? And the reality is, none of us deserve God's love. None of us deserve God's grace. Then why do we have it? Because it was his good pleasure to give it to us. And you can only have it because He gives it to you. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It is grace. Free grace. And that's it. The reason we will not be brought before Jesus and slain as His enemies is because Jesus, the gift of the Father given, died and took our rightful judgment in Himself. The world is under common grace. But if you know Jesus, and you know that He died for you, and you know that His blood has washed away your sin, and you know that He is the only hope of salvation, then you have more than common grace. You have His saving grace. And you have it because He chose to give it to you, not because you chose to receive it from Him. And I pray that you have that grace. I pray that you know that Savior. I pray that you will recognize that God in His infinite goodness and love has given to each one of us gifts. Don't despise them. Be thankful and use them for His glory. Because that's why He's given them. Don't be like the unfaithful servant. Don't be like those who will stand before Him one day and receive His wrath. Thank Him for His grace. Thank Him for His gifts. And use them to honor Him and glorify Him that His name would be known far and wide. Amen? Amen. Let's prepare to come to the table. The table we come to every week proclaiming the death of Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When he's talking about the table. In verse 26 he says, As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, even until. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. We don't just proclaim his death, we proclaim his life and we proclaim the fact that our master will return. And when he returns, what will he find? Will he find faith in you? Will he find that you've taken that gift and used it for his glory? I pray that he will. Let's all stand. God is so good and God is so graceful. We are all products of his grace and products of his goodness or we would not be Here today, standing here, hearing his word, breathing his oxygen and taking advantage of the life that he has created and given us. I want to encourage you, church, as you go out, we are living in a time when men are desperate for hope. And they are seeking hope in all kinds of places. And it is imperative for their salvation that they look for that hope in Jesus because Jesus is our only hope. Don't look at what you don't have. Be thankful for what you do have. I don't care how small it is. There is not one person in this room today that has not been given gifts by God, And you have more gifts than you could ever imagine, even if you can't see them, even if you don't know them, you have them. Begin to be thankful for that which God has given you. And then take that thing and grow it. Build something with it by the grace of God, by the power of God, through the power of your prayer, by the power of your thankful heart offered up to God. I promise you, because God promises that He will take that and He will use it and He will multiply it if you do it for His honor and for His glory. And you will reap blessings beyond what you could ever imagine. Live for His glory. Be a people to show forth His glory in this dark world. Amen? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.